we're going to do just kind of a standalone sermon today of something that's been on my heart. Um, and I want to ask the question, how's your soul? How's your soul? Psalm 103, beginning at verse 1. If you're there, say amen. amen. Hear the reading of God's word. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Amen, amen. Let's pray before we dive in. Father, thank you uh, that you are the keeper of our soul. You are the tender to the garden that is within us. And we ask that you would come and, and by your spirit, you would shape us, mold us, prune us, do whatever you need to do to make sure we are healthy. Lord, we open up our hearts, our minds to hear from you, to know what you would say to us. But more than that, that we would be not just hearers, but doers. And so God, give us the, the courage, the faith to do what we need to do to trust you to follow you, to care and tend towards our soul, that it might rejoice in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Y'all may be seated. You may have seen a recent Disney Pixar movie called Inside Out. I think it came out a couple years ago, and it's a great little movie about a young girl named Riley. She's about 11 years old, and and it's this movie where it's kind of two things happening. You got Riley's life, and then you got the life inside Riley's mind. And there's this command center, and you know, it's kind of a cartoon uh, depiction of emotions. And so you've got this command center with five different emotions. You've got joy and sadness, disgust, anger, and fear. And so these emotions are constantly battling for the command center, kind of battling to be the one in charge. And as you walk through her life in the beginning, you see that most of her early childhood, Riley is full of joy. Joy is in control of all things. There might be moments where there's some sadness and some anger, but joy is always driving the ship. And you see these wonderful moments with family, and she's bonding with friends, and they're going ice skating, and just all kinds of joyful moments. And then something surprising happens. Her parents tell her that she's moving. And they're moving away from all her friends, moving away from all these wonderful things that she's used to. And then the worst thing happens, sadness, one of the emotions, accidentally bumps into this machine that erases all of her former memories of everything good that's ever happened. And so normally this kind of move would be something that might be a season of sadness, might be a season of anger, and then she would move back into a time of joy. But because she forgot everything good that happened, she couldn't get out of it. And the movie just completely shifts. I'm not spoiling too much. This is all in the first like 10 minutes. The movie shifts from bright and sunny and beautiful to dark and gloomy and her, her whole countenance transforms. And the rest of the movie is the journey to restore her joy. Yeah. 
And as I watch that movie, you, you think about your own life and you think about discouraging things. You think about uh, things that have gone on in your life that maybe have shifted your emotions, shifted your experiences. And you think about what one person has called a spiritual depression. Martin Lloyd-Jones kind of tagged that term back in the 1960s, and he, he was a preacher in London, and he looked out on his, his congregation and on his city, and he noticed that there was this, this tension, this, this uh, presence, where, and he summarized it like this, he said, Christians just aren't happy. He looked out at his people and he said, and he wrote it in a book, you, you could read the book, it's called Spiritual Depression, It's Causes and Cures, fantastic book. But he looked at his people and he said, they're just not joyful. People walk around and they're, they're always sunken down, they're always discouraged, they're cynical, they're, they're upset about petty little things. And, and he realized not only was that a problem for their own spiritual life, but he said it's affecting the culture around them. He's saying, you know, people, in, and this is in the 60s, he's saying people today, they, they are stopping asking the question, what is true? They're asking what works. In other words, I think he was ahead of his time. He, he couldn't imagine what 2021 would look like. But, but he said people are stopping the, the question, what is true and what works is the new quest. And so they're looking out at Christianity and they're saying, is this really working? I mean, the Christians don't seem very happy. They're, they're kind of known as grumpy and grouchy and fighting all the time and arguing about things that we don't even know what they're talking about. So he, he's looking at it and he's saying, not only is, is your spiritual depression, and he would, he would distinguish it, by the way, from clinical depression. He's not talking about things that you need counseling or medicine for, and he's not denying that. That, that is good and right. He's talking about a, a spiritual reality in your life where you have disconnected from God. And he says it has effects not on you, not just on you, but also around you. And so that's what I want to talk about today from Psalm 103 is this idea of spiritual depression. And it's interesting how often it comes up in the scriptures. And we'll see that in a minute, but it comes up throughout the Bible and particularly in the Psalms. Because the Psalms, if you're not familiar with the Bible, is is kind of the prayer book of the Scriptures. The Psalms are, are where you get expression to all the different emotions and all the different circumstances and everything that you as a human being may come against. The Psalms has a prayer for you. And so you see over and over in the Psalms of David, the man who's called a man after God's own heart, so he has high highs and then he has really low lows. Because he'll also pray things like, why have you forsaken me, O Lord? So it's not all praise. It's not all adoration and celebration. And so in this psalm, Psalm 103, we catch David in a moment where he's in a dark place. And he's giving us not only the cause, but the cure to this spiritual depression. And so I want to ask, how do we fight that? And, and this is the first point. It begins with taking command. Commanding our soul commanding our soul. He begins in verse 1. Look at it with me. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Now, the psalmist begins in a fascinating way. He's talking to himself. I mean, he, he kind of opens up with, I'm going to tell myself what to think. 
And it's a little odd because uh, we don't really, first of all, know what's going on in his life. He just jumps right into that in his prayer. We don't know if this is when he sinned with Bathsheba. We don't know if this is when he, uh, you know, he was running for his life from Saul. We don't know if this is when later in life his kids ran out on him and caused all kinds of problems. We don't know what's going on. We just know David opens up with this sense that he is going to speak to his soul. And he says to his soul, soul, you may not want to bless the Lord, but you will. And he tells his soul what to do. He commands his soul. In other words, he's not wallowing in his sin. He's not wallowing in his misery. Rather than listen to his heart, he leads his heart. He tells his heart. He speaks to his heart. And before you think David was going crazy, this was, like I said, common throughout Scripture. Right? The saints of the Old Testament and the New Testament, they, they knew how to do this spiritual practice of speaking to your soul. Elijah in the loneliness of his ministry, he had to remind himself that God was with him. Yeah. Jeremiah, in the darkness of exile, had to speak to his heart that God hadn't abandoned them, even when it seemed like everything was lost. Oh, yeah. Paul, even later, as he was undergoing so many persecutions, he would say, he would call this to take every thought captive. Yes. Yes. In other words, you have to address yourself. You have to speak to your heart yes. and take command of your soul. Maybe you've seen, as you're driving out on the road, you've seen those cars that have uh, the sign on the back that says student driver. Sometimes it's on the front because they know you want to see that when you're looking in your rearview mirror. And, and it's this big yellow and black caution tape and it says student driver on multiple sides of the car because they know that it's some 15-year-old kid who's played Need for Speed on PlayStation and they think they know how to drive. And so it's usually a student, about 15 years old, 16 year olds, and a, and a person who's training them, right? You got the teacher. And sometimes the car even has two steering wheels. You've got one steering wheel that's the main steering wheel that the student is using to drive, and then next to them in the passenger seat, there's a second steering wheel that the teacher can use. Like if it gets crazy, they're starting to veer off into oncoming traffic, or they're about to hit something, the teacher can override the other steering wheel and just take control and begin to steer. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see that? It's, it's this amazing picture where if something dangerous is about to happen, he doesn't just let them go into the danger. He stops them and he steers. He takes command and control. And what happens in our life is sometimes we get so uh, comfortable with with the status quo, we, we get in a place where we kind of let ourselves go spiritually. Where we've, we've become passive passengers with no mechanism to, to take command. And so we're just going wherever our heart desires. And so if our heart leads us to bitterness, so be it. If our heart leads us to anxiety, so be it. If our heart leads us to despair, so be it. Like we're just kind of along for the ride and whatever happens, happens. We've lost control. We've let circumstances become the driving motive in our life. And the way you can tell is real simple. Your countenance. Your countenance. Joyless, hopeless, anxious, afraid, 
I mean, it's all of us. We've, we've all been there maybe this week, maybe this month. I, I don't know. But, but you get to that place where you know you've, you've let the circumstances dominate your life and take control, and now your heart has led you into a place you never wanted to go. And listen, we're, we're in a culture that makes it even harder because we're preached constantly on television and social media and everywhere else. Just follow your heart. Right? That, that is the mantra of our culture. Follow your heart. If it, if it feels good to be with that person, do it. If it feels good to pursue that, that uh, desire and that ambition, then go for it. If, if it feels like that's the right thing, then it must be the right thing. And we see it in our workplace, in our relationships, in our family, whatever it may be. But here's the problem with that. What if you can't follow your heart because it's not trustworthy? What if you can't just do whatever feels good because you can't trust your feelings? Right? What if your heart is not something that, that you can just follow blindly because the Bible says in Jeremiah 17 that it is deceitful above all things? Like what, what if your heart is actually lying to you and if you follow it, it's leading you places you don't want to go? That's what happens to David. Whatever's going on in David's life at this point, his soul has gotten to the place where it doesn't want to engage with God anymore. It's gotten to the place where he's forgotten everything that's happened. It, it's gotten to the place where he's despairing and discouraged and he has to take back control of where he's gone. You see, rather than follow our heart, we have to lead our heart. Rather than listen to our heart, we have to speak to our heart. You have to grab control of the wheel and say, this is how I'm going to live. This is how I'm going to think. This is how I'm going to feel. This is what it's going to be like. And you say to yourself, you say to your soul, hope in God. Put your trust in the Lord. Soul, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Soul, get up from the pit of despair and turn your eyes upon the Lord of glory. You have to do that. But no one else can do it for you. David isn't asking someone else to speak to his soul. He's saying, I have to speak to myself and say, this is how you're going to feel. This is how you're going to think. This is how you're going to live. You catch that? But why? What, why is that so hard to do? If you've ever been in that place, you know it, it sounds easy, but it's so difficult. And this is where David goes next. He helps us to see that the second point is forgetting our God. That This is what's underneath it is this forgetfulness. He continues in verse 2. Look at what he says. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. David repeats himself for emphasis, right? We talked about that last week, that when you see that in the Bible, you see this repetition. It's for emphasis. He's saying to his soul, Bless the Lord, again, but then he moves on and he says this. He says, forget not all his benefits. And forget is this incredible word. It's actually a huge theme throughout the Bible. And, and it's more than, than what you might think it is. In Hebrew, the word for forget means ignore or wither. In other words, it's, it's not this passive lapse of memory, like I had too much information, I crammed for the test, and I somehow forgot you know, 80% of it, so I got a seat. It's not that kind of, it's, it's an active engage or active disengagement from the truth. 
In other words, you, you are choosing to, to deny and ignore what is true about God and what He's done. You've actively participated in not upkeeping the truth in your heart. And this word forget is actually a covenantal word between God and His people. And you, you see it all throughout the Scripture, but it begins and He, br- he brings this language in from Exodus. And we've been talking about it as we were going through the Sabbath series the past few weeks. We talked a lot about the Exodus, but a refresher course for those that may be new here. Uh, Israel was in bondage for 400 years in Egypt. God hears their cries. After 400 years, they've been living in slavery. Egypt has oppressed them. They've been living under this, uh, this bondage where they're building brick by brick with no straw, and Pharaoh has no intention of letting them go. No intention. He he is going to continue to profit and profit and profit off of their free labor. And then God steps in. After God hears their heart cries, He he steps in and He he delivers them out in this miraculous work that He brings in the Passover and all these signs of His power. And He brings them into the wilderness and on their way to the promised land. Do you remember what Moses says? Moses says he's standing before millions of people who are about to come into their inheritance about to come into a land flowing with milk and honey, as he says. He says this, Take care, lest you forget the Lord. When your herds and flocks multiply, and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then, then your heart be lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. See, Moses knew their hearts. Moses knew our hearts. He knew that our hearts are prone to wander, prone to give in to whatever might be in front of us, especially when we're full of all kinds of good things. Especially when life is going well and things are multiplying and things are growing and things are in abundance. He says, this is where you need to be cautious. Because when you're full, you'll forget. When you're full... You'll, you'll forget. In Matthew chapter 16, uh, you find Jesus with his disciples in a boat, and Jesus is exhausted. It had been a long couple days. They'd been doing ministry out with these crowds, and, and the crowds kept growing. People kept coming to follow Jesus and listen to him, and, and he gets out in the wilderness, and thousands of people at this point are there in the wilderness. And Jesus looks out at the crowds, and they've been following him for so long, they had no food, they had nothing to drink, they were exhausted, and he has compassion on them, is what the Bible says. And so in his compassion, he turns to his disciples and he says, hey, y'all go find some food for these people. And the disciples look at each other, and they're like, what, what do you mean, us? And what, what food? There, there's not a McDonald's down the street, there's not a corner store to grab some snacks, what what are you talking about? We have seven loaves left, and that's all. There's 4,000 of them. And Jesus says, well, what do you have? And they said, well, this, this is it. This, this is our bread. And then he says, give me the bread, and he breaks the bread, and the bread begins to multiply. And the bread miraculously continues to multiply until they have enough to feed the 4,000 people. And again, Jesus would do this another time, and feed 5,000 people. This is an incredible miracle that that they are witnessing for Jesus to feed all these people only with what they had. But then just a few hours later, they find themselves on a boat 
And the disciples look at Jesus, and this is their question. What are we going to eat? Where, where's the bread? We, we don't have any bread to eat dinner. And Jesus looks at him, and this is what he says. Jesus has much more patience than I would have. Jesus says, why are you discussing that you have no bread? Do you remember the 4,000? There it is, that word. Do you remember? This is hours later. Do you remember? See, they had forgot the miracle. I want to ask you today, what have you forgotten that the Lord has done in your life? What have you forgotten? Do you remember God has done amazing things in your life? If you'll only stop to look and to listen and to ponder who He is and what He's done, that you'll, you'll remember. You'll remember when God stepped in to save your marriage from the destruction of unfaithfulness. You'll remember that when God heard your cries in the night as your children were wandering far from Him. You'll remember when God comforted you in the pain of losing your father to cancel, cancer. You, you'll remember when God set you free from that addiction that you had by the throat. Do you remember what God has done for you? Have you forgotten who He's been to you? See, in the darkness of spiritual depression, the battle is to remember. The battle is to remember back. It, that, that's where your hope lies. Your hope lies in what you see behind, and, and you look out on your past, and you see how God has worked, because it's in the past that you see His faithfulness that gives you hope for the future. Right? You look back and you're able to say to your soul, remember your God. You're able to take control of your heart and say, don't forget the God who saved you. Don't forget the God who loves you. Don't forget the God who provided for you. Don't forget God at all. And for some of us, it's the busyness of life that keeps you from remembering. It's the busyness of you're going from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. You don't have time to just stop and be. You're overwhelmed by work. You're distracted by uh, relationships that are going bad. You're, you're fearful and anxious about your kids. All kinds of things that just keep you busy and going. And, and even if your calendar's not full, there's, there's a busyness in your heart that you just can't stop and be. You just can't stop and slow down. But let me tell you, renewal in your life won't happen. It won't happen on the run. It won't happen on the go. And this is why we, we push so hard for what, what has traditionally been called spiritual disciplines. Things like prayer and Bible reading and Sabbath. And the, the goal, let me let you in on a secret. The goal of spiritual disciplines in a nutshell is to get you to stop and be with God. That's it. There's different ways to do that and ways that God works. We call it the ordinary means, but, but it's to stop and do what the psalmist says, to be still and know that He is God. When, when have you stopped to speak to your heart and say, remember? Remember what he's done. Remember who he is. Remember how he's worked. Remember how he showed up. Because if you, if you stop and you slow down long enough to notice, you'll see his work. You'll see his presence. You'll see his goodness. See, when we slow down, we get to rehearse what he's done for us. And this is the last point, rehearsing our redemption uh, after David warns his heart not to forget, he then begins to rehearse the benefits in his own life. 
He's gone from, I, I, I need to take control of my soul. I need to take back the command of, of what's going on in my life. And then I need to remember not to forget that this, this is how I've gotten this place. It's because I've forgotten. But now I need to do one more step. I need to specifically call out what he's done in my life. And look at what he says in verse 3. He says about God, he says, Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, and who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. See, David rehearses five ways, five ways, specific things that God has done to show his goodness. God forgives, he heals, he redeems, he crowns, he satisfies. What David is saying, he's going on this string saying, every good and perfect gift I have is from you, Lord. This is all from your hand. This is all from your heart. This is all you. And all of these things, they flow from the very first thing, reconciliation with God. See, it's, it's, no, uh, it's no coincidence that, that the first thing he says is God forgives. The first thing he lists is that he would forgive me from all my sin. Right? In order to know God's healing, in order to know his satisfaction, in order to know his joy... It comes through being made right with him. David looks back on his life and he realizes the best thing that God has done is not that he helped me in my relationships. It's not that he provided in my finances. It's not that he helped me in in, in what I needed in my, my work. It's that he saved me. He redeemed me. He forgave me. He loved me. He showered His grace on me. And so we can't sing without first being redeemed. There there, there is no worship of God without a redemption. There, There is no heart that overflows with praise towards Him if there is no remembering His work in us. But in Christ, we know who we are. In Christ, this is who we get to celebrate our new identity. And with Christ, all is ours. It's who we are. See, it was the seventh inning of Game 7 of the 2016 World Series. And the Chicago Cubs were playing the Cleveland Indians. And uh, if you know anything about baseball, the Chicago Cubs had gone over a century, a century without a, a championship, without winning the World Series. I mean, it became kind of this joke that the Cubs could never win. They were cursed. They, they had no chance. And so here they were in Game 7 of the World Series, and they're winning. They're up 6-3 to three against the Cleveland uh, Indians. And, and so because of that, everybody is starting to panic, like, is this going to happen? And then the, the Cleveland team comes up, and, and they score three runs, tie the game. And now everybody's like, oh, see, we knew it was too good to be true. The wheels are going to fall off. This is what happens to the Cubs. And people start to spiral into depression, and this is going to be the worst experience ever. And then it gets into the 10th inning, and Providence sets in, and the rain comes. And the rain is coming down so hard, they have to postpone, pause the game. The grounds crew comes out, covers up the field, and everybody goes into their locker rooms. And when the Cubs go into the locker room, everybody's defeated and despairing and and kind of sulking around the room because they think this is it, we're going to lose, we've given up the lead. And their right fielder, Jason Hayward, he stands up in front of everybody, all his team, and he says this, listen, 
I know everybody's discouraged. I know we blew the lead and I know it's the 10th inning and it's not looking good. But listen, you got to remember who you are. And he starts to go down the line of all the things that identified them as the team that made it to the World Series. He said, we have the best record in the, in the whole league in the regular season. We've won two rounds to get to this place. We came back from a two-game deficit to force the game seven to get into this game. And he starts to cheer and say, listen, this is who you are. Don't go out there and act as if this isn't who you are because this is who you are. And that team, it, it, they said it was like, it was like someone poured a... Uh, like steel into their spine like they they were just they stood up straight they were proud they were excited because this is who they were they go out and they win and the cubs win the first championship in 108 years because they knew who they were because they realized this is who i am this is who I am. See, the gospel is the truth. It's the good news of a new identity, a new identity that defines you, not based on your past, not based on your present, not even based on your future good works. The gospel is good news of an identity that's not about you and your name at all. The gospel is good news about an identity that's another name, the name above all names, Jesus himself. See, Jesus comes from heaven to earth to purchase a name for us. That was his mission. He comes to earth to purchase a name that we, we could take upon ourselves, right? He comes, he walks among us, he suffers in our world. He was born to teenage parents in the poverty of Nazareth, where everybody says, can anything good come from Nazareth? And then Jesus comes and he lives his life to love the unlovable, to be tempted in every way, yet without sin, to define good itself, to be light in the darkness, to be faithful in the midst of betrayal. He was the, he was the kindest to the most vile. That's who he is. And then when he does that, he goes all the way to the cross to purchase a name for us that would be perfect. A name without any blemish, a name without any wrinkle, a name without any stain, a perfect, precious name. And then God takes that name and he writes it on your heart to say, this is who you are. He writes it on your heart, not because you've earned it, not because you've done something to, to receive it, but you simply trust. The name that comes by faith, not by works, comes by receiving, not earning. Grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. This is the name of Jesus. The name that grants God's greatest smile. The name that makes God's heart leap for joy. The name that sends God into songs of celebration. It's a name that we receive by grace. And grace is enough because God is enough. It's who you are. That's your identity in Jesus. And listen, as we close, I want to ask you, do you have that name on you? And if you do, is that name shaping how you think about your soul, how you feel about your soul, how, how you look at the world and how your life is shaped into the image of Jesus? Is that name the driving force in your life? Because the name of Jesus and all the benefits that flow from it, all of his grace, all of his mercy, all of your status as a child of God, all of that is really who you are. Is it shaping you? And if you're here this morning and you don't have that and 
Maybe you're, you're desiring that. You're trying to figure out what your relationship with God looks like. Let me tell you this real quick. Faith is simply ceasing to make a name for yourself and trusting the name of Jesus. That's what it means. It, I'm going to stop trying to make a name for myself by doing this or doing that or trying to be better or trying to make up for something I've done or trying to beat myself up. I'm, I'm stopping that. And I'm going to trust in the name of Jesus, the name that has earned for me a place with God that I can't deserve, but he's given it to me. I'm going to trust that name, and that name is going to give me joy because it's a name that I can't mess up. It's a name that I can't screw up. I, I can't even give it up. This is the name that defines me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would uh, help us to trust in your name. Lord, as we look at our soul and we may be discouraged or despairing today, we may be anxious, we may be afraid. Well, I don't know what's going on today in, in the lives of folks who are, who are here this morning worshiping with us, but I do know whatever the, the, the problem, whatever the cause, we know that you're the cure. We know that you're the one that we look to and can trust. We know that you're the one who, as we put our faith and trust in you, you flow and rain down your blessings in us. So we ask today that as we uh, turn our hearts towards you at the table, that you would help us to remember. As you said, do this in remembrance of me. Oh Lord, shape our hearts. Help our minds to be recalibrated. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.